it's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talking Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Agriculture Conversation right here on the LaneCast. And we are going to continue to talk about all things agriculture and We are at the kitchen table once again, as we call it, but we're not even sitting at the kitchen table like our last conversation. We're actually sitting in my Ram pickup truck brought to you by Snowy Mountain Motors, no doubt. But our friend joining us here today is Mr. Daryl Stevenson. He calls Hobson, Montana home, and he and his family operate Stevenson Angus. Daryl, how are things going today? Morning, Lane. Um, Thanks for the opportunity to visit with you. Glad you could make it here today. And of course, this program is brought to you by our friends at the Public Lands Council. They are celebrating 50 years uh, being a voice for the more than 22,000 public lands ranchers across the West and the nation. They're celebrating their 50th annual meeting coming up in Park City, Utah at the end of September. Make sure and visit them online at thepubliclandscouncil.org for more on that great event coming up later this fall. But, Daryl, we're sitting here, and you and I have known each other for quite some time. A long time. And there's quite a lot of people out there that know all about Stevenson Angus and the genetics that you have uh, provided the livestock industry and the the black Angus industry over the the past uh, several decades. But maybe for our friends joining us on the LaneCast today that aren't familiar with your family and the genetics that you provide the industry, let's do a quick overview. The the ranch itself is, it's the longest running production bull sale in the nation. Am I correct in saying that? It is, Lane, and actually I appreciate a little bit of a backstory because I think I know where this conversation is going to turn so that people might have a little more clarity on how or why things are actually happening today. Quite proud of our history. My great-grandparents moved to central Montana uh, before the turn of the century and then actually settled around the Hobson area before there actually was a town or a railroad in existence. And the first land purchase actually didn't take place until in the 30s. And then and then in 1947, my grandfather purchased the first registered Angus cattle, which uh, was then the start of Stevenson Angus Ranch. Since that point in time, there's been a significant expansion uh, with cow numbers, land base, and family, of course. And uh, today, we would uh, proudly host the longest established annual bull sale in in America. And that would be actually of all breeds. The first sale was 1961. And today on the home place is my parents, Keith and Roberta. And along with uh, my family and my brother's families, we would host uh, two bull sales a year. One in the fall, one in the spring. And then some private treaty offering as well. Uh, Totally combined throughout the year, we would market about... 600 bulls and four to 500 uh, commercial bred females. What's important to understand as we move this conversation into some uh, international perspective, uh, the way that I was raised and in the purebred business, it's, it's not uncommon to actually uh, have foreign visitors or, or be exposed to those marketplaces. My grandfather first worked with some import-export logistics as early as the 60s with uh, some Canadian cattle, which into the 70s moved into our first live animal being exported to Argentina. Through the 80s, um, we were fortunate enough to be part of some large heifer shipments to Japan 
over a period of a couple years. We sent about a thousand bred heifers that direction. In the 90s, it was more so in South America. And uh, today, and most recently, uh, there's a lot of people that are aware that I've done considerable work in uh, Europe and Central Asia with uh, Russia and Kazakhstan. And, and there's, there's a lot of reasons behind that. Now, I know we're really going to get into that conversation about uh, the opportunity you and many other ranchers from Montana have had to uh, to go to Russia, but let's talk more about your family. Yeah, mm-hmm. Claire, she, we, we're, we're actually uh, recording this show at the Central Montana Fair in Lewistown, Montana. Your daughter just uh, got out of the show ring here. She uh, uh, is an uh, active FFA member and active in a horse showing as well in the family ranch. And then your son, CJ, he uh, was a state FFA officer, a a few years back, goes to Montana State University and uh, is a member of the Alpha Gamma Rho fraternity there, which you and I are both uh, members of that agriculture fraternity as well. But let's talk about them because obviously we, we were discussing the, the past of your family's ranch, but where do you see the cattle industry gro- going and where do you see your kids being a part of that uh, picture? Uh, very, very proud parent. First of all, speaking on, on behalf of CJ, he is uh, uh, currently in the Alpha Gamma Rho fraternity. He's incoming uh, third year junior at Montana State University. He is actually enrolled in the honors program. And I'm... Man, we even have some uh, music there. And that's him calling He's right calling. now. He's <laughs> calling. <laughs> and that's... that's uh, uh, Montana State University right now, I couldn't actually be more proud of what they're offering those students. Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, these kids in the way that we've all grown them up in rural central Montana with uh, the great exposure they've had through 4-H and FFA, I, I actually pushed a little bit more to go into a different direction. And so he's an economics major. And I think he's got tremendous interest coming back into the production agriculture. And I, I think uh, diversifying uh, your education background is critical in moving forward. Um, Claire, now she will be an incoming senior in high school, been very involved with horse showing, uh, today, the last couple days, she's had market hogs, breeding stock, uh, very, very proud of what she's done there. And, uh, she's of course also very, very involved in, uh, FFA as well. So, uh, both kids, there's no better way to raise the youth in America today than through the 4-H and FFA programs. And quite frankly, us as Americans uh, don't, don't consider what we've, what we've actually given these kids for an advantage going into life, whether they stay in the production sector or move on to different industries. I, I think that I'm quite fortunate that both kids have shown incredible interest uh, for returning home or at least continuing within agriculture. And I think it's vital. It's it's absolutely critical for us to tr- uh, to continue developing this future generation for that, for the benefit of not only our state but uh, the country as a whole. Now, our last line cast, show number thirty, uh, for our friends listening today, you might want to go back and listen to that because my guest was Marty Campbell from Pendleton, Oregon. He's an FFA advisor, pro rodeo announcer. Uh, he, he's a, a minister as well, and he shares just an awesome message about the importance of why the world needs more cowboys and why kids need to be involved in 4-H or FFA. So I don't want to go into the weeds on that, but if you haven't listened to that show, that goes directly what what Daryl is talking about here today. But Daryl, FFA, 
was very big for you in your family as well. Your brother was a national FFA officer in the uh, early 90s, Michael. Yes, sir. Uh, and you were you were a state officer, correct? Yes. Were you? And uh, in the AGR. Let, uh, everything in agriculture, I believe, starts with 4-H or FFA. How did becoming a state FFA officer and going to and graduating from Oklahoma State University and being an AGR, how, how has that set you up to where you are today in your relations in the United States and abroad? Well, let's just actually take agriculture out of the equation. I think most people, you and I sitting in this uh, vehicle and anybody listening to this podcast is probably directly related, and they, they would fully understand the benefits of growing up uh, around any kind of livestock and learning the the elementary forms of animal husbandry the the format that you're talking about through these youth programs 4-h and ffa and agr for me and a state ffa officer were more uh different world we're real world responsibilities it's it's the ability to <clears throat> reach down deep in your gut and know that you've got an extra gear that you can just keep moving it's the ability to uh, to to analyze situations and stand behind your belief and what it is in, in giving reasons on a judging team. It's the ability to interact with people, to, to moderate situations. It's uh, to analyze opportunities when they're best available. Uh, in working with animals or people, um, the ability to actually observe and and engage uh, can can t- take you distances that are unmanage- unimaginable uh, for, for most kids that aren't in those situations. These country kids have a leg up. They go into urban settings and they can stand there proudly, shake somebody's hand firmly and look them square in the eye already gives them an advantage. And those youth organizations build that confidence. They, they, they build that ability to go out with more self-assurance. Some people say that we're maybe giving too many opportunities for these rural kids and they're, they're equipped to be so successful in urban communities that they don't come back to the rural communities. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on that? Well, there is actually some truth to that, that, that uh, we've actually developed a young, young society that is going to go out and, and achieve and excel at, at any level. And with restricted opportunities going back into production agriculture, these kids that are motivated actually do go out and... and, and and pursue where uh, they will see return. And so I think it is a responsibility back to us as an industry to to make more opportunities in these shrinking rural communities. I mean, in, in our circumstance right here close to home, we're in a situation where we have to combine three towns uh, for a sports program to, to at one point in time make a six-man football team. We're actually back up to eight-man. Uh, but it doesn't look like we're growing anytime too soon. And so uh, we've got to get creative enough. We've got to get intelligent enough uh, to be able to uh, stop the brain drain and actually create local economies closer to home. Now, a lot of these small communities in central Montana, you know, there's a lot less farms and ranchers out on the land. Some of those rancher, ranches, uh, 
you know, the only opportunity they have of bringing kids home is, you know, the neighbors might be selling out, and and so they they have to grow to be able to be successful. Um, What's a circumstance where maybe uh, through diversification and just having a job in town, what's your bit of information you have for young farmers or young ranchers or just anyone that wants to live in these rural communities? What's your tip of information? What have you learned over the years, and what have your friends maybe learned? This is a different world today. The world is a much, much smaller place than what most people realize, and it's access to information. It's the ability to communicate. Um, Smartphones and the Internet have changed this world. You can work remotely out of your house, and I think there's tremendous opportunities moving forward for people that live in the rural areas and even in ag production to be able to be directly connected and and I, I think that's got the largest areas of opportunity myself. I deal with it every day. I mean, I'm certainly on the production side at home with the seed stock operation, but there isn't a day that goes by that I'm not communicating with somebody in a different time zone or continent. What's your biggest challenge out on the ranch? Uh, there's the three bigs for expenses that you deal with. It's, it's the amount of input. Um, fuel, feed, and labor, and and it's uh, overwhelming costs on all of those just to keep keep in check, and uh, it narrows down to those three in general operations, at least at our place. Mm-hmm. Now let's let's jump into that uh, Russia conversation. Uh, let's uh, give a little bit of a history on on how uh, this international opportunity uh, came up for you and, and other ranchers in Montana. Uh, to uh, really uh, change the landscape in parts of rural Russia, and uh, to uh, and eat. let's just talk about how there is really no one knows what a cow how to work cows initially when this first started. Let, let's just do a history of that for those that may be not familiar with uh, the Russia venture. I think maybe I need to step back and give a general overview on why this actually even came about. Briefly, I mentioned that it wasn't or isn't uncommon in the seed stock business to inter- interact with uh, different countries or different cultures because the genetic side of the business is relatively narrowed down. It's a small world uh, when pursuing to to improve cattle as we do. So I will say my first trip in 2007, it was actually a state-sponsored trip by the Montana Department of Agriculture. And there was two producers, myself and Jack Holden from Holden Herefords, along with uh, um, um, actually Russell Nimitz. Russell was on that trip, Russell right? went along, and uh, Ron DeYoung from, uh, he was the state ag secretary, and then Marty, uh, Marty Earnhardt from the department, the marketing officer for the Department of Agriculture. And uh, it was two days out, and Jack and I were both ready to back out, not go, because we we were looking at uh, Russia primarily as a non-existent uh, beef consuming beef production nation. And I think one of the best things, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever took was my dad said, now you've allocated the time you, you go, you go learn. We can handle this here at home. And uh, boy, did it ever open my eyes to um, the immense amount of opportunities that are still left in the world now talking about russia specifically the things that 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 we did discover is is absolutely mind-blowing to most people that you visit with uh in this country in this state i mean you've got to realize just some background on what i'm talking about the united states is four time zones everybody knows that the the continental 
country of Russia is 10 time zones. So let's narrow that down just a little bit. If I'm to fly from Billings, Montana to Moscow, Russia, that's 10 time zones apart. We all realize that's a half a world away. Well, you've also got to realize from Moscow to the east coast of Russia, that's another 10 time zones. That's how far wide it, how far apart and how far and wide that country is spread. Uh, we traveled for days. We never saw a fence. I mean, it's kind of an ongoing joke that when we took the first cattle, it was, boys, you better get it stopped right now because there's not a fence from Poland to China, and that's the truth. I just spent another week. I just returned in the country of Kazakhstan. It's the same case. It is, it is an immense amount of natural resources that are totally being uh, underutilized. And so the opportunity for production from that perspective is there. But then secondarily, if you do mathematically on, on everything else that goes into the equation on, on what they were importing for consumption, what they were actually producing uh, for in-country use, uh, their aspirations for po potential future exports, these are all big, but you got to understand, if I could narrow it down to one thing, when people talk about cattle going to Russia or they talk about cattle going to Kazakhstan, the first thing that they consider is, well, that kind of makes sense because they want to feed themselves. They want more beef. Well, that is true. There's no doubt about that. That's the long-term end goal objective. What these countries, however, in the meantime are considering is what happens in between that. First thing is local economic improvement. It's actually putting people to work. It's employing people. It's teaching people. The second thing is building infrastructure, literally fence lines, buildings, headquarter operations, um, local rural communities, getting them back on their feet. Number three, it is actually putting land or natural resources back into production. And then fourth, which is kind of a strange thing to say, is actually redistribution of some population where where they get real concentrated in urban centers. It's, it's actually getting them redistributed back out before they get beef production cycles back into full swing operation. So briefly put, that's, that's kind of how some of those things get started. Now there's always uh, that statement that, uh, you know, shipping... That shipping the genetics uh, from here in Montana or the United States over uh, to different countries, whether that be South America um, or the continent or to uh, to uh, Russia itself, that uh, that's taken away from the industry here in the United States. So, what's your rebuttal to that? Not a chance. <laughs> I don't. It, it's not. It's actually. It's a far-fetched but believable theory. I completely understand. Uh, that pushback approach. But the fact of the matter is uh, it, it literally will take generations. I'm talking 30 to 50 years for some of these countries. I talk Russia specifically. It'll take a minimum of 30 to 50 years for them to get to the point that they're actually producing enough beef for their own consumption. So that's number one. Number two, uh, by taking marketplace away from us, well, let's analyze the marketplaces that they would be taking away from us. Number one is their own country of Russia. First of all, we don't ship any cattle or any, any box beef to Russia the way that it is today. We're not losing any of the marketplace that we don't have. Number two, uh, without question, they've got their eyeball on China. Well, let's analyze how much beef we ship to China today. 
We don't, essentially. We're not losing a marketplace that we don't have. Number three, you're looking at uh, the EU. Um, we, we do ship boxed beef. That is a small market for us. But you comprise those three markets of which we currently are not active in. And, and, and you expand that through a generation of people. And we deal with a growing population to the point of 20 and 40 years from now we truly do as an ag industry get put in the situation that we will be pressured enough with the challenge of actually truly feeding the hungry mouths on this planet and so i in total comfort uh am doing and am inactive in what i'm in in exporting these live cattle with little to zero concern on pushback on how that affects our local marketplaces. It kind of just makes me think back to uh, when Montana and the West was being settled and, and uh, how all those English lords would buy ranches in Montana and uh, help establish those. That, that's what I kind of think about. You're not an English lord, by the way, but uh, would you want to be? You do have a kilt, don't you? No, I, I don't, actually. Um, well, there's a lot of people. There's a there's a, a misunderstanding on that too. That, that these are government purchases or or subsidized programs. And and I challenge anybody to reflect back on how the West was won and how the West was settled because the Oklahoma land rush, uh, any of the land grant programs when the railroad came through, uh, the western part of the United States was essentially settled on on similar type subsidy type programs. Um, the subsidy type programs that you hear today on that side of the planet are completely different. The government does not own these lands. Um, the subsidizations that come in actually assist with uh, percentages of interest rates. And so in their own form or own fashion, they're actually just trying to get their land put back into, into production. So similar yet different. Do you have any concerns about uh, the uh, international situation between the United States and, uh, and the Putin government over there? Not actually at all in fact i i think it might be assisting in in these projects i was told just a week ago uh from the consulate in uh, kazakhstan uh based out of astana uh got a big pat on the back you guys need to keep doing what you're doing because this is really important for home and and i jokingly kind of was walking away from that conversation they said no seriously this is a big deal and, and to pull that out of them is that uh, the live cattle exports that have happened thus far this summer are actually the, the leading exports financially from the United States. You add up everything from whatever, steel to light bulbs to bicycles, I am being told that the live cattle interest in money being sent back this direction is as big of uh, an economic push that our country has towards the country of Kazakhstan at this point. Now, the lane cast, it's kind of like working cows. Uh, it's never going to go the way we plan it. And so I'm going to a little jump back into the history there. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of Montanans involved in the process of this trade relationship uh, from the ambassador. I'm, was he was he from Montana at that point? And was Tyler Wilchin involved in this as well? Was he an interpreter? What what was, let, let's talk about that because I, I, I'm unclear to that and I can, you know, what was that? Quite interestingly enough, there was there was uh, quite a few Montanans involved in some of the early stages. Uh, your reference was actually to uh, to Ambassador Michael McFall. 
He, uh, yes, he was born in Glasgow. Uh, I think he was raised in Butte, graduated from high school in Bozeman. And I've met uh, Ambassador McFall actually a couple of different times. Uh, he was educated at Stanford. I think he went to Oxford after that. And, and then the Obama administration appointed him ambassador. I think it was over a four-year period of time. He was there during the reset button stage. Um, I can't say that it was probably a great experience for him. Uh, anybody that's listening or watching national news is probably seeing him um, as, as an extreme critic at this point in time. I'm, I'm not going to judge one way or another, but uh, I, I don't think that his time frame and time spent over there was, was uh, probably the most enjoyable on his behalf. Uh, from from our side, from the the live cattle side, there are certainly not only from what I was able to establish and start, but there was a series of of cowboys, a lot of different help that I took back for short stints or elongated uh, amounts of time uh, that that were influential uh, directly from Montana. It's actually crazy that uh, the way the media has actually portrayed. <laughs> Uh, our national relationships right now in, in being in, in being conveyed as um, for everything that we read here and and see today, believe me it's it's polarized uh, equally as much on the other end. And so publicly uh, it, it does look like we are at a cold war status, but you break through those walls and you actually make some personal relationships. Um, I'm, I'm telling you, we've got as much in common in some aspects with uh, those folks as, as, as your neighbors, you know, a county road down, down the way. Um, this is driven politically. It's driven by the media and, and not, not in a friendly perspective. How did you get the cattle over the, over the ocean? It's a tremendous effort. Um, from 2000, from 2011 to 2014, there was roughly 400,000 head of heifers that were imported to just the country of Russia. Now, understand that that all did not come from the United States. In fact, the large majority of that actually came from Australia. Roughly 70% of those heifers actually came from Australia. The rest were from America. Some got sprinkled out from Ireland and France and some other beef-producing countries that could get a shipment however they could. Um, I, I was actually quite active and quite honored to actually be a part of that because that ended up being the, the largest movement of cattle um, across continents actually in history. And, and the shipments took place one of two ways. They either went by, by air or by sea. Uh, typical shipments by plane uh, would have actually been loaded at Chicago O'Hare and shipped on on 747s. Depending on age and weight class of heifers, they're loaded in crates. Um, anywhere from 210 to 240 head per plane load. But as you would expect, it's a lot cheaper to fly them than it is to actually send by boat. And the majority, without question, was, was by sea freight. And um, it's an interesting industry. Um, truly before 2010, the United States never viewed itself as a live cattle export nation because we weren't. And so there, there, there's a real limited supply on seagoing livestock vessels. 
and uh with that a lot of competition on on that vessel reservation so the the boats that we use today roughly carry about 2500 heifers and that that would be kind of an average sized almost small sized boat whereas the largest vessels in the world could carry upwards of six to eight thousand i actually believe the largest vessel in the world can carry fifteen thousand yearling heifers and pushing forty thousand head of sheep but we'll never see that boat dock over here because it's run full-time from australia to indonesia pretty much with mm -hmm. those live cattle so how long is that crossing how much feed has to be on those boats how many people have to uh be there to take care of them the logistics to actually move these cattle would be a complete hour-long segment for you and I to talk about. It starts, I mean, you've obviously got to have a contract uh, for everything set in place, and I don't need to go through the, the headaches and concerns of the financing and how the transfer of funds take place. But from this end, on sourcing, the one advantage that that I had early on was reputation of the home herd of Stevenson Angus and I had built enough relations uh, throughout the years that they understood the kind of cattle that we did raise and they they were seriously interested in those type of genetics and demanded that and so through uh, many of my customers I was able to fulfill a lot of those orders so you simply start with sourcing and then the cattle if I could just uh, if I could just make this as elementary as possible, you source the cattle, uh, they are then processed and, and they're ID'd, and then they would go into a minimum 21-day quarantine where they go through a series of health testing, um, uh, several different tests for blue tongue, glucosis, uh, TB-tested brucellosis. Um, I'm missing a couple there. Uh, it's, 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 they, they, they see the shoot a lot of times over a series of, of that three to four week period. And then through land transportation to get them through, they're fully isolated um, through holdover facilities and then loaded on the vessel uh, from the East Coast, generally Delaware uh, in Wilmington is where they're loaded to, you could go to two ports in Novorossiysk through the Black Sea or to Usluga, which is through the Baltic, either one. Usluga port is about a 15 day journey and then from wherever they need to go to inland as well. And uh, early on, seven or eight years ago, uh, inland transportation was somewhat sketchy, but they've really upgraded. They've got proper uh, trucks and equipment and with full full feed and, and water. Um, uh, these ships are fully automated uh, with ample, ample food and, and uh, in, in the form of pellets and and hay and fresh water. It's actually quite a comfortable setting. Uh, you couldn't treat the animals much better. Now let's talk about what it looks like now in Russia versus those open plains like the West used to be before it was settled. What are those changes now? Obviously, we mentioned there's fences, there's infrastructure, but how does the uh, the uh, stewardship of that come into play too? Because in the United States, uh, we are stewards of our land. What are some of those steps that you that are are in place over there? Probably just exactly the same as we do here. Well, if I can narrow it down, the big the big concerns up front um, in looking back today is is feed quantity, feed quality in general, animal health and 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 let's let's face it they they just had uh zero applicable knowledge i mean i i use an example all the time that 
my primary veterinarian, her name was Katya. She, I met her when she was probably 24 years old, fresh out of uh, vet school. She was a, fur, a fully qualified DVM uh, out of the, one of the most prestigious schools in all of Russia. And the day that I met her, she had actually never seen a cow, never seen a chicken, never seen a sheep. She had ridden a horse and seen a dead chicken in some class. There was zero practical knowledge. I mean, incredibly book smart. She could recite a textbook page or the back of a vaccine bottle. And so it was that practicum that they needed to actually experience. And and that transmits clear to every form of operation. I mean, our early stages was absolutely disgusting on what I could actually get out of uh, help period. And, and I thought up front that my job was actually to go there to teach and 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 convey proper methods of management and it took me a while to actually realign that thought and understand that I was simply there to actually help them from their own destruction I was a safety net because whether we realize it or not we totally overlooked the fact that through 4-H and through FFA and through the youth programs in helping develop and teach these young kids. I'll use the simplest of examples that anybody here at home, anybody listening to this podcast is going to realize that when you walk through a closed gate, what do you do, Lane? You close the gate, right? Well, we all learned that when we were 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old. Well, you know, when you go into a foreign country that they have zero experience, they'll walk through that closed gate and leave it open four times, six times, ten times before it kind of dawns on them you know, maybe I want to close this gate before I have to chase these heifers back in again. And it's every step along the way. It's whether it's it's how you make a fence, it's how you build a water trough, it's it's how you construct construct a working facility. And so the early years, a lot about it was is was about surviving, <laughs> and once you got past those modes and in into actually operating. Um, it's a three-year rotation. The first year, it was all being told they had to do this, them not knowing why. The second year, it was the second time through recognizing, hey, I, I saw this. I remember this. I kind of wondered what, I, I remember what we're doing for cabin season. The third time around was the magic year. That's the year that it dawns on them that, oh, this is the reason we're doing this. And so it's a slow, long, drawn-out process that hopefully they were able to survive to get to that point what's the future look like then with stevenson agnes can in the in the other operations uh, from across montana that are over there what's the future look like uh in in growing the uh the knowledge and the ranching operations over there well i'll speak to russia first of all i'm actually extremely proud of the fact that i was able to successfully exit that project uh, last summer, I I was approached in 2010 uh, to become a partner in in uh, uh, a Russian corporation, and I was. I was an equal sharing interest partner in the very first unit called Stevenson Sputnik. And in 2010, there wasn't an animal, there wasn't a building, there wasn't a fence, there wasn't electricity, there was no developed water. And our first construction and our first exports started taking place that year. Seven years later, in 2017, we had expanded that to a second, third, and fourth unit. And between them, we were calving 7,000 cows last summer. 
And uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, it kind of culminated to a point, and we had two offers uh, to sell all or nothing. And it gloriously was my exit point. And, and we were able to, to sell the project in its entirety. It had grown not only on the ranch production side with a seed stock unit, cow-calf operation, feed and growing yard, we actually had uh, went to the extent of building our own packing plant uh, with one of my Russian partners actually starting two restaurants. So in the sense of a, a true vertical integration project, um, that's, that's exactly what it was. And, and I'm, I'm very proud. I'm very pleased that we were able to start, finish, and succeed profitably uh, to conclude what ended up being just one fantastic life story adventure. And in seven years. In seven years, from 2010 to 2008. So, yeah. so eight. Eight years. So how, how did the name Stevenson Sputnik come along? Because obviously you always read when you're growing up in history class, the, uh, the first satellite put into space. That, that's what I think of. Am I wrong in, in that name? No-brainer, actually. Stevenson Angus in Hobson, Montana, joined efforts with the Sputnik farm, an already registered operation that those partners had in existence. That, number one, combining the two names, number two, it truly was a satellite of the Stevenson Angus herd in the sense that the very first shipment was 1,435 head of registered cattle of all ages uh, that, that was to serve as the core nucleus herd for not only those expanding units, but within the region and nationally. And as it ended up, um, today, there, there was three bigs, three big companies uh, that were totally vertically integrated. Uh, the one is a monstrosity, number one, that grew from nothing to uh, uh, a, just a colossal effort of probably over 300,000 head today. Number two uh, was similarly the same size as us, and that's actually who we would have aligned with and sold out to. And they needed our cattle. They needed our land base. They're actually good friends of mine. They've, they've got their uh, very current, very modern, very uh, expensively built uh, packing plant with two forms of branded meat product, and they are ex doing extremely well. Beyond that, it gets a little difficult to point it out who the, the the, the big efforts were because in that country, I, I can't say that I fully agreed with how those, uh, the financing terms and the effort was put more forth towards uh, bigger one-dimensional, uh, therefore vertically integrated projects, whereas today the emerging interest, which will be considerably more uh, in terms of cow herd numbers and heifers exported, is much more focused on on village herd sized family units for the country. That that was going to be my next my next question. There, it, you know, it seems that it's you know, bigger bigger operations there. So that that's why you were over in Kazakhstan over the past few weeks. So let's talk about that and and how that you know how it will focus more on smaller operations like we have here in the United States. I actually really appreciate their effort on this because they took their time and they actually analyzed Big Brother and Rush on how that developed. And there was some initial uh, shipments in the years 11, 12, and 13 to Kazakhstan. And uh, they, they had their successes and they had their horror stories. And now uh, it's time for them to step back and see what is workable and actually what is not. My first trip 
to Astana, Kazakhstan. It was actually in 2013, and quite frankly, it was too mature at that point in time, or too premature at that time uh, to even consider these discussions. And so the way politically that they've actually approached this, they've had a new minister of agriculture step in uh, with the intention of rural economic development and actually realizing uh, the, the opportunities that they have and all the vastness of natural resources that are available. Now, real quick, simply put, Kazakhstan, I believe, is the ninth largest country for landmass in the world. There's not many people that pay attention or even realize who they are. They're just south of Russia, Central Asia. They were part of the former Soviet Union, but ethnically they are a different class of people. I mean, true Russians are Slavic. Uh, ethnically, Kazakhstan are Kazakhs. Kazakhs, ethnically, for a thousand years, for thousands of years, were nomad herders. And believe it or not, they get it. I've traveled a lot of places across this world and I can't say that I've actually seen a culture more adapted or more natural for horsemanship. You drive down the road and you don't see fence lines, but you see cowboys, I'll call them. They call them nomads. They call, uh, they're, they're herding sheep, they're herding goats, they're herding cattle, they're living in their yurts. They, they, they get it and they're asking the right questions. So now, now the job is is to get them the cattle it's it's to get them cattle in production and it's a it's a big vast country that's very similar to the last story i was telling you uh big expansive remote areas of high plains borderline desert that could and should actually be put into production and this is from a very large landmass country that is actually quite limited in population i think I think it's the ninth biggest country in the world with only 17 million people in the country. So I, I foresee it as uh, another, another big run of big opportunity. I think another big window is about to open uh, for another wave of potential exports. Now, just uh, my, my last question on Russia there, because obviously Kazakhstan is going to be focused on those smaller family operations. Will we see uh, small operations in Russia uh, be developed, or is there is there is the market cornered by these other businesses that, that that have been established? Will we see small operations of two to four hundred head? Not in Russia, but you will in Kazakhstan. Okay. And there's two different there's two different reasons and two different answers for that. Actually, they're both they're both countries that are living with a hangover from the Soviet period. And what I mean that is they bury in paperwork, they bury in. Uh, government bureaucracy, and it's just absolutely too complicated with little to no incentive, actually, in Russia. And in Kazakhstan, they've actually promoted this much differently. What they have set aside is extremely long-term, low-interest-rate loans set up specifically for the 100, 200-head units. And it's uh, completely achievable, even by the exchange rates that they're dealing with. Now bringing it back to uh, to the United States, uh, looking at your genetics, uh, your production sales, uh, what's the advice that you have for those young ranchers out there that uh, are either uh, commercial and looking at uh, enhancing their genetics and uh, choosing different genetics? Or in, and uh, the other part of that question, what's the advice you have for these younger uh, purebred breeders that are getting into the industry? They might sell 30 head a year. Uh, two different questions, but uh, let's focus on uh, the opportunity on the commercial end. 
This is actually my favorite part of this conversation because deep down in my core, this is actually who I am. This is what I live to do. And I have actually, because of these international experiences, I've actually learned more about myself, my cattle and genetics period on, on what works, what doesn't work. And I've actually uh, diligently tried to bring a lot of those lessons back home and integrate into my own program. I forewarn a lot of producers commercially or smaller breeders or younger breeders that in the industry today there is a lot of information and a lot of information looks really good and that actually has become to the point of almost being dangerous to the point that there's a lot of marketability uh, that, that, that makes cattle uh, more appealing but true value to me and this is my own opinion comes down to truly optimum balance they 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 have to be the right kind of cattle for the right kind of conditions and i mean if you want to be trait specific about that uh i'm not a, a believer at all in in the extreme birth weight birth low birth weight phase that the industry has seen i mean moderate or less is is ample enough but you cannot sacrifice performance um it goes without saying, and this, and this is fact-based, that Montana is the seed stock capital of the world for a reason. Um, reported by the American Angus Association, 20% of all registered Angus bulls sold in the United States originate or selled, sold from the state of Montana. Montana is the number one state for registrations for the Angus Association, and they're the number one state for um per performance data including weaning weights and ultrasound data and yearling weights submitted as well so there's there's actually no disputing that it's actually fact-based 100 percent so in knowing where your environment is and what you're working you need to work trait by trait specific but not get aligned or one-dimensional and get too extreme functionality these cattle you you, you got to remember i mean uh True feet, utter soundness, uh, fertility, longevity, uh, longevity, uh, uh, the, the the ability, fertility to breed back every year. They're becoming more paramount and even more important today. And I can testify to the fact in going into some of the most extreme environments of the world, the high plains and the plateau of Kazakhstan, or pushing right next to Siberia, I've seen what genetics work and which ones don't. I mean, if they don't work, I mean die. And, and I mean, I bring that mindset back home and, and I can say firsthand that my customers have seen direct effects, uh, for, for direct improvement and leave it up to, uh, the integrity of your seed stock breeder to, to worry about how much of the carcass that they're integrating into their program. I mean, if you're retaining those calves, great, push that along. Uh, but on the other side of it, uh, there, there are minimum, uh, thresholds that on the commercial end that you need to worry about and and i think the people that deal with it every day on the on the seed stock sector they know what they're doing and and put your self-reliance into that and lastly it's gotta it's gotta work for everybody i mean it's gotta be profitable for my customers for them to come back every year it can't be too extreme at any end and i mean it's got to be service oriented build and develop a relationship so that you're both working towards the same end goal objectives and and hopefully there's profit every step along the way for you what's the biggest lesson you've learned in in your life so far the biggest lesson it's been exposing my kids 
to the world outside of Judith Basin County, outside of central Montana, outside of Montana, because I can physically watch their eyes widen and absorb how the rest of the world operates, every opportunity I've given them. I, I was able to take them to Russia. I was able to take them to Scotland, to the World Angus Forum. And it has given them an outlook on the world, not just in agriculture, but for their simple appreciation for what we do have at home. A lot of people in this country don't stop to consider how great this country is and for what reason. Um, you know, I'll just, I mean, in, in living and being in Russia as long as I was, you know, we, we totally overlooked the fact that, uh, you're not guilty until proven in, you're not guilty until proven innocent in this country. Well, other countries, it's, it's completely different. I mean, uh, I mean, their laws, their regulations, the oversight on that. And, and I don't care how, how old your kids are. They learn from those things. The biggest difference between those cultures and our cultures is this country has never starved and for them to hear stories to to see monuments to talk to people that have lived through uh time frames and i'm talking as recent as perestroika in 91 and 92 where people <clears throat> literally stood in lines bread lines in the early 70s they went through the same thing and through stalin's purge and uh through world war ii it doesn't matter when you're talking to cultures that, that they literally have went hungry and, and we've never experienced that, it's given my kids a completely different outlook. And I, I, I can say that I'm, I'm just blessed for that and I appreciate that. Well, just looking back, uh, my grandparents, of course, lived through the Depression. That's about the only time in the last, in American history, where there was a time where people had to really value food and the things that they owned. And even youth in America nowadays, they don't they don't understand that at all <laughs> no they don't there's it's uh it's a sad state that there's such a there is such a disconnect from rural i want to just generalize this but really from rural america or or working class america to the i i hate to say it but to the east and to the west coast um, there's just a, such a lack of understanding between the two cultures from, from within our own, own countries. Um, the backbone, the heartbeat to any successful nation is got to be agriculture. Heard a quote one time that pretty much summarizes that. You've never seen a revolution from, from a fat country. If they had enough food, there's never been a revolution. Now you stop and consider that. And that, and that truly is the case that uh, we are fat and wealthy and uh, we're dealing with a lot <clears throat> of hungry mouths in, in this world today. I mean, I hate bringing, bringing these conversations kind of full circle, but in my big philosophy, I mean, I mentioned at one point what's going to happen in 20 or 40 or 50 years in terms of growth of uh, human population, but bigger than that and to our biggest advantage today in agriculture is the, the, the growing middle class worldwide. Um, there are, quite frankly, just more people that can afford more food. And when they can afford more food, they want better food. And, and that starts with, with dairy products, which uh, essentially elevates into pork and poultry and then ultimately beef. So I'm a cowman at heart, and I think we can feed them all. 
Now, you and I have uh, sat down and had uh, adult beverages before and discussed uh, how to utilize uh, social media and other platforms uh, now as we uh, continue to advance in, in different technologies. But in marketing your production sales and your ranch, what are you doing differently than what has been done in the past uh, 20 years or 30 or 40 years in, in reaching out to those uh, buyers uh, or just uh, helping educate people on your operation? Social media is an absolute beautiful thing for connecting the world, and it's also such a dangerous weapon with the falsehoods that could actually be displayed out here. Um, and I, I think it's come at a point in time in America that people uh, have had to actually sit up straight and actually start to learn how to evaluate what's real and what's not. For me personally, on on day-to-day uh, -day business, to me... I felt like uh, more direct communication with my customer base has actually become necessary. Uh, it's actually made me closer in several aspects that they can see, not necessarily day-to-day -day activities, but I'm, I'm not that current. I don't have the time to sit down, but they can see what's happening. You know, glimpses of new herd bulls or genetics, seasonally, what's going on, and it gives you a taste or a sense or a feel of of the outfit that you're actually working for or or actually with um probably not going to make some people happy with this but the day of print advertising is gone and i say that in the fact that you can google this anywhere you want but the the fact people uh, google how many times does a does an average american look at their phone a day i mean it's got to be 150 200 times or more and and that is the mode that's the form of uh, communication that's how I get my news that's how I start the day by reading the news headlines and and I, I you know, I'm a little strange this way but I, I look up and see where currency rates are I mean and where, where do we rank today compared to the ruble compared to the euro I mean that's strongly influential and then it's cattle markets beyond that mm -hmm. because it's quick it's instant you're experiencing this and in, in your business I'm sitting here uh, visiting with you and how many people is this gonna reach Hopefully millions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, a few thousand is the hope with that. But it, again, it's a different form of sharing agriculture media and advocacy. That's the reason I started this. Well, and we've all got to get better educated. We've got to connect because um, you and me are preaching to the choir and probably a lot of people that are listening to this, it's the same choir that we're preaching to. And I challenge everybody that our job is to actually expand past that. I mean, our job is to better educate the larger, larger voting populace. It is the the this the disconnected coast that we're talking about. The larger urban area settings to hopefully better educate so that they have a better, stronger appreciation of what we do have to do to produce the food that uh, is going to make this nation thrive. Any any other tips that you have for folks here today? Because I think we need to have another conversation down the road. I think you and I could talk for probably six or seven hours straight, especially if there's a little uh, Canadian product uh, that's uh, uh, exported down here. Yeah, I only commit to that if you're going to buy me lunch and a beer at the new brew pub downtown. We can go do that right here. Yeah, check that out. Lewistown, Montana, the central uh, feed building. If you've ever been in central Montana, it used to be the old feed building. It is now a brewery and grill. Pretty cool to see that in small town, Lewistown, Montana. But hey, that's a topic all in itself right now, Daryl. 
you know, uh, youth are so accustomed to having all these different amenities and different surveys of what uh, youth that grew up in rural communities, uh, one of those studies shows that one thing that they want moving back to a rural community from a urban community is mm-hmm. a gym. Well, then they're not throwing enough small square bales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Those India cubes do give you a pretty good uh, workout. But uh, I'll, I'll give you the floor. I always say Bobby's Rules of Order instead of Robert's Rules of Order. You were probably really good at Robert's Rules of Order in FFA, weren't you? Not very good. I, didn't, uh, I wasn't very disciplined in, in any area. <laughs> well, I'll give you the floor, Daryl. Uh, anything maybe when you're, 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 the time frame of your spring and fall sales where they can learn more about Stevenson Angus and uh, where they, if they want to stop out at your place, uh, how they can do that. That's awesome. I really appreciate your time just to visit with you. I actually, uh, the one thing just in our whole conversation, as strange as it sounds, I I rarely get to talk about any of this because people just kind of get numb to what's going on and, and the details. So to be able to share my story is not only the education process on the other side of the world, but a little bit here at home so people just have a, a little better understanding. I'd love to visit more, communicate more with anybody that that has interest, uh, more specifically to me at home. Uh, the Stevenson Angus annual production sale is uh, always the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving. I believe this year it's November uh, 29th on Tuesday, and then in the spring sale is March 20th. Between those two, we'll sell about 600 bulls, two different age groups, yearling coming two-year-olds. Uh, feel free uh, probably through Facebook, uh, Stevenson Angus is a good place to actually communicate her message there or, or let your opinion known to be Lane. I'm sure he'd be willing to share it back with me. So I appreciate it, Lane, and uh, good luck to you. Well, thank you so much uh, to Mr. Daryl Stevenson for uh, joining us at the kitchen table here today, joining the agriculture conversation right here on the Lanecast. For more shows and previous talks about all things agriculture and even rodeo make sure and visit us at nordlandcommunications.com and follow and subscribe to the Lanecast on google play apple devices stitcher and soundcloud thanks for joining us here today we look forward to joining you down the road thank you for tuning into the Lanecast with talk and ag lane nordland for more on lane check out his facebook page lane nordland ag broadcaster and nordlandcommunications.com don't forget to subscribe to the Lanecast on your apple or android devices we look forward to joining you next time on the Lanecast.